Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. I think one of the biggest, most impactful changes to the way we live our lives, to the ways we're educated, probably even to how we end up making an income, is about to come from video games. And I think the possibilities are quite electrifying. Welcome to The Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Elshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. So there's a quote you've probably heard, sometimes attributed to Ted Turner, that life is just a game and money is how we keep score. To be honest, I always found this kind of an obnoxious sentiment. Not the game part. Philosophers, playwrights, and economists have been saying for thousands of years that all the world's a game and we're just players. But is money how we keep score? I hope not. This week, we're talking about video games and what they can teach us about money, economics, and life. Gaming is a $180 billion industry, so if money is how we keep score, it's winning, and it's beginning to beat movies and sports. We're used to thinking of video games as recreation or entertainment, but now they're showing up everywhere, from TED Talks like the clip we heard at the top, to high school classrooms. People are using them to teach how to manage money and how we make choices in the real world. I think that we've kind of failed to think about games correctly. Lane Nooney is an assistant professor of media industries at New York University. She teaches a class called Video Game Economies. Her class covers the business of the video game industry and how it's evolved from coin-operated arcades to the VR headsets we use now. I think it really underscores how much we find play, which is such an essential mode of human expression, to not have value. This class is about the past and present of the video game industry. So we start with video gaming's pre-commercial origins, and then we go through arcade, console, and then we get into questions in the second half of the class about platform economies, digital distribution, how has the internet changed, both the ways that games are made, but also the ways that games are sold and consumed. Nuni also practices what she teaches. I game across a PC, a console, and my smartphone. I play everything from stupid match three Candy Crush style games to far more complex open world first person shooters. Sometimes I'll try games out just because I know that they're popular amongst my students and I kind of want to know what they're playing and what they have on their mind. But for a lot of young people, they've never been able to sit in a room with an adult who takes games seriously. And that in and of itself can be a pretty appealing part of being able to take a class like this. Nooney's class looks at the systems used and created by the gaming industry. And those systems have a lot in common with the larger economy. We talk a lot about supply chains. We talk about distribution platforms. We show how platforms like Steam, which is a major PC digital distribution platform for games, leans toward a monopoly. How app stores lean toward monopoly. The business of video games is huge. People spent a total of 8.8 billion hours watching gamers streaming on platforms like Twitch and YouTube just in the first quarter of this year. A survey found that more American kids want to be a YouTube star than an astronaut when they grow up. 
We talked to one person who's made that dream an extremely successful reality. Meet Tyler Blevins, a streamer and professional gamer. But to his tens of millions of fans, he's better known as Ninja. I went to community college and that's when I started streaming. And I was working at Noodles and Company anywhere from four to eight hour shifts. And then after that, I would literally come home, maybe take an hour nap. And then I would just be streaming for like 12 hours. It was gnarly. Ninja uses Twitch to stream his games. It's a platform that allows you to stream just about anything you want, including video games. The average number of viewers has risen to almost 3 million this year, up from 1 million in 2018. That guy literally just came out of nowhere and killed me. Let's get those modules up, maybe get the members here. Let's get the members. There's no question that Ninja has made a lot of money playing video games. But I asked him if he bought into the notion that games could be used to teach kids about money and economics. Dealing with money while playing video games. I mean, absolutely. So um, over the last couple of months, I've been playing Final Fantasy XI. It's an economy-based game. There's a chain of items in this game that if one of them goes down, the entire chain completely falls apart, right? You know, the inflation starts to happen and things like that. And in this game, I make food. And right when I was able to start making this really good food that everyone wanted to use, I made too much of it. Basically became this, there's just way too much supply and demand, right? There are these things called notorious monsters. And when you camp them, they can drop very rare items. You can choose to buy out an entire ingredient or an entire material that is needed and then what that does is like, OK, well, now there's none left to purchase. Right. So the next time one goes in, since there's only going to be one or two, the person can just bump up the price. Right. Because there's a massive demand and no supply. Players think it's OK to use the virtual economies built into the game to gain advantage. But a lot of games have mechanisms that allow you to buy your way to success. So those are what we like to call pay to win games. Any true gamer is going to cringe when they hear that. So, for example, Fortnite, there's V-Bucks in the game, it's free to play, but Fortnite is not a pay-to-win game. You could be a brand new player and start out and start playing the game, and you will have the exact same advantages as everyone else. People are spending a bunch of money on V-Bucks and skins, so they're incredibly successful. You know, if you want to make your game pay-to-win, that's fine, but you'll usually lose out on a pretty big portion of your audience. What this gets at is that game design can be a bit like policy design. Nobody wants to play a game that only the players with the most money can win. You could argue much about our society is like that, though, from college admissions to how long you have to wait in line at Disney World. People want a game with a more level playing field. It's interesting to think that games could be a way of teaching about inequities in our society and the relative advantages and disadvantages different people have. You know, I once played a game created by the Financial Times that put you in the shoes of an Uber driver and it was like, can you make it in the gig economy? And you realized just how much the deck is stacked against these drivers and how hard it is to make a decent living. It did that in a way better than just a story would have. Yeah, even some of the more popular video games that kids play can have you in a situation where you're kind of experiencing what life is like for a lot of workers around the country. I remember playing a game when my kids were a little bit younger. It was called overcooked. And you're basically a short order cook. And the game puts you in the shoes of these kinds of workers who are in these high stress environments where you're preparing meals for hungry customers and you've got to chop and bake and boil and you've got to get things off the stove in time before they burn. You've got to get the food out before the hungry customers get agitated. And I was completely stressed out playing that game. That's enough to make anyone want to do a great resignation. 
What's up guys, I'm now about to go undercover at YouTube Reacts. Gonna be filming some pretty cool behind the scenes Fortnite stuff. It's gonna be people who don't know that they're playing with me, uh, but they're gonna find out, so. Ninja has been playing video games since his early childhood, and in a way, his story sounds a lot like what we usually hear about a child prodigy in piano or violin. I've been playing video games my whole life. I always go back to this memory of my dad playing, and I was watching him just fight this boss for like three hours, and he kept losing. And I'm sitting here like, okay, well, he does this at this time. When his health is this low, he does this. And then when this happens, he does this. So like, I knew all of his moves. So when my dad handed me the controller and I beat him on my first try, you know, he's like, dude, what the heck? It was clear the more we talked that in Ninja's mind, his success as a streamer doesn't rely just on his exceptional skill at video games. He really sees his role as that of a performer. For me, it was being funny, my voices, entertainment value, and the skill level that I have in the games that I play. And what I was able to eventually figure out when I first started streaming that the funnier I was when I was doing these 1v1s that I would do, I would do funny voices and I would also absolutely dominate the opponent that I was playing. My viewers would go up. Ninja's gamer skills, combined with his ability to entertain, has captured him an audience of millions. What if teachers could use that kind of engagement to teach economics, sometimes called the dismal science? Could Minecraft make economics less dismal? More on that after the break. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we spoke to Ninja, one of the most famous streamers in the online gaming world, and Lane Nooney, who teaches a college course about video games. Like Nooney, some educators are turning to video games, not as a subject, but as a teaching tool. A lot of these games imagine worlds with their own jobs, currencies, and markets. And it turns out teachers are experimenting with using these virtual worlds to teach real-world economics. At the root of it, economics is about making decisions. Whether you choose to walk to class or drive to class, whether you choose to fly home for Thanksgiving or take your car or take a bus. That's Noah Trudeau, PhD candidate in economics at West Virginia University. Video games are designed for us to make choices. And it doesn't matter what kind of video game you're playing, whether it's a, a one-player story-driven role-playing game or an online multiplayer battle arena. It's all about choice. Trudeau teaches an intro-level econ class where he uses video games to teach basic concepts like managing personal finances. Stardew Valley is all about managing a farm and you have to decide what seeds to buy and plant and how to grow them to gain individual profit. And you have to manage your own personal finance in that game to grow your farm and grow your business. It mimics very well the kind of individual budgetary aspects you see in personal finance. Trudeau's approach evolved from circumstances he was thrown into. When universities closed at the start of the COVID pandemic, he had just started teaching for the first time. Suddenly, he had to figure out how to do that virtually. 
I was standing in front of my class and I said, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to make this class as interesting virtually as it is in person. I'm going to try and bring as much personality via a computer screen as I can. And one of my students jokingly asked, are you going to start streaming on Twitch? And so over the spring break, I, I set up for Twitch streaming and I decided to hold virtual office hours in extension to my normal office hours. At that point, quote unquote, office hours. I wanted to foster an environment that was casual and approachable. I played whatever game I felt like playing that night. And if a student came in, I could switch the screen over and draw out the mathematical formulas or, or do the graphical analysis or whatever. I made the argument that video games are economics. That started to spill over into regular lecture because your standard college student is probably playing video games or has played video games or, or at least understands that reference. In the U.S., 18 to 34-year-olds make up the highest percentage of video game players. Just behind them are players 18 and under. Trudeau isn't alone in realizing that his students would respond well to learning via video games. We also spoke to Mark Mizzou, an elementary school teacher who uses Minecraft. Minecraft is a sandbox game, which means it has no specific goals or directions. You can build anything you want, just like in an actual sandbox. It is a virtual world, all based on commodities and mining and getting resources. So I saw that I could use that concept where students have to start building. They have to start getting resources. They have to get wood to make tools. They have to do all this mining and acquiring of raw materials. It's a real-time experience. Minecraft allows for complex world building out of colorful blocks representing different materials, everything from diamonds to water to cows. What quickly develops among the students is an economy. They start trading. They start uh, realizing what uh, resources have value. There's scarcity. There's supply. There's demand. All of those market forces and all of those basics of economics, I use their knowledge of the game to explain things like investing, to explain what a bank is. One thing that's unusual is that Mizzou's program has always been taught only online. I joined a school out of San Francisco. It's called OutSchool. It's kind of uh, been described as the Netflix of teaching and education. And I've been teaching specifically on that platform to students from 7 to 11 years of age. In Minecraft, his students set up businesses. They specialize in building or collecting certain materials, and they invent their own systems for trading. I'm going to make tools, and I'm just going to sell them to anybody in the game that will trade me maybe a diamond for my pickaxe. They start developing little businesses. Some of them are very quick to just go ahead and start being entrepreneurs as soon as they show up in the Minecraft game. So even on those things I thought would be really hard to explain and for them to grasp, as long as I'm keeping it in their Minecraft language, I mean, you can explain real estate value. You can explain shareholders' value in a company. You can explain what a partnership is. 7 to 11 years old might sound pretty young to start teaching kids about corporate structure, but many experts suggest that kids should start learning about risk, cooperation, and decision-making at an early age. 
While games like Minecraft are based on resources and building, others combine social elements that mimic political situations in real life. One game in this style is SimCity. I think one lesson that you could say is that you can't necessarily divorce politics from economics. Those are not pure spheres of existence. And so I, I could play SimCity with a very different political frame and walk away with different conclusions. That's Mitch Green. He's a research scholar at the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity and an economics instructor at Portland Community College. He's also a former student of mine. I started playing SimCity at the start of the pandemic. I remembered that that game has a very specific play mode where you can do discrete supply chains. And this idea of exploring the difficulty of running that game while trying to like specialize in maybe producing raw materials like coal or oil or all the way up a value chain through semiconductors. And semiconductors are actually particularly important because we're in short supply of those these days. Green uses SimCity to teach his students about supply chain bottlenecks and the importance of working infrastructure. One of the things I wanted to make obvious to students was this idea that if you can think about costs differently, like for instance, let's suppose money was no object. Let's suppose you could get Congress together to allocate all the funds necessary to solve the real world problems that you wanted to solve, then in that game, you can just pump it full of money. And so if I wanted to go and say, I really want to get a lot of semiconductors produced, and that to me will solve my social problem, then I essentially go through and I show the students that I need a lot of trade ports, I need to beef up my roads and rails, I need to improve all the infrastructure around the supply chain because that's all part of the supply chain too, in a sense. And then I think light bulbs start to go off and, and students start to say, oh, I see what you're saying. So money is a sort of measurement tool. What we're really talking though is about real resource. While Green's class uses video games to teach the economic issues we're facing, Lane Nooney finds her class on video games often leads to discussions of capitalism. The way I teach my class is about showing students how capitalism works through the game industry. So rather than focusing on specific games per se, we look a lot at the, the systems that games move through. A lot of the stuff you see go on in games is actually just a lens through which you can understand the larger operations in capitalism. In a certain sense, I'm teaching them the same lesson about capitalism through all of these different forms. One day it's through digital distribution, the other it's through mobile gaming, the next it's through Twitch, the next it's through esports. We're constantly studying how do digital infrastructures that are highly financialized ultimately produce situations of inequity, often for the people who are least in power in these systems. So that might be developers, that might be esports players, that might be Twitch streamers. Right? Obviously not someone like Ninja, but Ninja is the 0.01% out of tens of thousands of people who are trying to make a living within these systems. Contrary to the old stereotype of the gamer as a loner hiding away in their basement, teachers like Mizzou have found that games can get kids to really open up. Some of the children come out of their shell that maybe have been more introverted, and especially on a subject like money. But I mean... Once you get into that Minecraft language, it's like everything kind of opens up and all the little torches go off in everybody's heads. People think of video games as solitary activities, but that's not entirely the case. Video games are often structured to be interactive and cooperative rather than competitive. 
and gamers learn to quickly read and collaborate with a randomly assigned team of strangers. Here's economics PhD student Noah Trudeau again. The generation before me, it was everybody was sitting on the couch together and you'd pass the controller around. And then with the innovations in high-speed internet, everybody had their own system. Everybody got to hang out virtually. And now people are making friends across state lines, across country lines. And you have your friends that you've never met in person, but you all are sitting there playing the game together and you have that community experience. Ninja agrees. Being the most talented, just raw talent, that is only going to get you so far. There are teams that just get outclassed simply just because they work better together, their teamwork is better, and they just, you know, they move more as a unit, right? I think that that can be compared to businesses where, you know, the communication inside the business is super incredible. I think listening to all this, it's clear video games do have a lot to teach us about money and economics. And it's really cool how sophisticated the engines of these games are with dealing with commodities and trade and prices, even inflation, you know, all sorts of core factors in the economy. Kids really get experience with, you know, from an early age now. Stephanie, do you think as an economist, an expert on public policy, is there value in using these games as a teaching tool? I can see a lot of value in using video games in the classroom. I mean, not just to teach economics or finance, but you know, programs like urban planning and design. You think of a game like SimCity, where you're making decisions about building public transportation and where to put a city park, a library, things like that. I guess you could easily imagine somebody getting into a game like that and then gravitating to studying something like urban planning when they go to college. When my daughter was playing Minecraft, I remember asking her if she thought she was going to grow up and be an architect, because the worlds that she was building, those sandboxes that she would create and bring to me, were just mind-blowing. So I began with that quote from Ted Turner, that life is a game and money is how we keep score. I'm still not convinced on the money is how we keep score part. But listening to all these experts, it's clear that games do have a lot to teach us about money and the economy and how the world works. And playing them is a way to engage with concepts that are sometimes abstract and hard to really wrap your head around. They're also a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. If you like what you heard and you'd like more people to know about the show, could you take a minute to rate and write us a review? It's the single biggest thing you can do to help others discover the show. Thanks to Lane Nooney, Mark Mazou, Noah Trudeau, Mitch Green, and Ninja. To learn more about teaching through video games, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch, produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers, and our associate producer is Hannah Libowitz-Lockard. Our researcher is Alana Myers. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Melissa Pons. The Best New Ideas and Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.